Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. There is an idea of Patrick Bateman, some kind of abstraction, but there is no real me, only an entity, something illusory. And though I can hide my cold gaze, and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours, and maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably comparable, I simply am not there. Welcome back. You are listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode, American Psycho. Beware, spoilers. Coming to you from my basement, as always, my name is Don. And to my right, we have our comic book guy, John. Hey. (laughs) And to my left, we have the professor, Ken. Hello, gentlemen. How are you guys doing? Not, not so great. Why not? Because you made me watch a freaking puppy snuff film. It's funny in a podcast about us giving fucks, he says freaking puppy snuff film. We are back after a week hiatus. Uh, so thanks, COVID. Um, and tonight we are going to be talking about American Psycho. I thought we were going to be talking about mall rats. Well, so did I. But then as I just mentioned, thanks, COVID. American Psycho released on January 21st, 2000 at Sundance and April 14th, 2000 in the United States. It was directed by Mary Heron, screenplay by Mary Heron and Guinevere Turner, based on the book American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis. And it stars Christian Bale, Willem Dafoe, Jared Leto, Chloe Sevigny, Reese Witherspoon, and a bunch of other people. How'd this movie do, Don? This movie was made for $7 million and it brought in $34 million. So not, not a bad haul there. Well, it's good that they didn't go with their first choice to play Patrick, which was Leonardo DiCaprio. They wanted to have him actually be in this movie, but he wanted $20 million. So that would have pushed them way over their budget. Well, yeah. I mean, this is after Titanic. So, mm-hmm. you know. Leo would go on to get his $20 million paydays. Yeah, he went on to do The Beach. They brought Kristen Bale back in uh, because he was originally cast to be in this movie. Then they flip-flopped a bunch of things around. Uh, They brought him back in for $7 million. Yeah. Uh, Did you... Have you seen this before? I have not seen it before. Oh, really? I thought you had. Uh, Professor, had you seen American Psycho before? Uh Uh-uh. Oh, wow. So we... uh Popped your cherries for this movie. I feel feel pretty good about that. And, And thanks for warning me about the dog. Uh, what about the dog? About the dog getting snuffed. Oh, well, to be fair, I didn't want to. So, there you go. Yeah, you, you know when I got to that scene, I actually yelled out, fuck Don, for making me watch this movie. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not the first or last time I'm going to hear that tonight. Yeah, I didn't give a shit about the kitten. I was more upset about the dog. Yeah, I knew you would be. You know, when you look at IMDb, they don't have a category of puppy snuff. 
They should. There should be like a little box in there saying a puppy gets snuffed in this movie. Or you could grow a big sack and just deal with it. Yeah. So. Now, I don't base my judgment on movies because, you know, John Wick is still one of my favorite movies, and that is a puppy snuff film. Also not listed as a puppy snuff film. You're, you're right. You're absolutely. Yeah. What do you think this movie is more primarily known to be? Is it known to be more of a horror movie, or is it meant to be... Um, uh, a, a drama? What do you think? Or even a dark comedy? Uh, it's been labeled as all of those. I would put this into a horror movie category, horror movie thriller, where I think serial killer films fall into because they definitely have the horror aspect with the gore and the violence and just how disturbing things are. And then there's also uh, the thriller part of it and mystery. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually... You get, uh, you know, cops or detectives or someone on the trail of the serial killer. Sure. And in most serial killer movies, we are on their side. The story is told through their uh, perspective, our heroes. Uh, in this film, there are no heroes. And our movie is told from the serial killer's perspective. That's what I thought was awfully, you know, different about this movie. It's very untraditional in that, you know, of all the scenes... There's only like one or two scenes that we don't get Patrick Bateman in it, that yeah. we don't get Christian Bale, that, uh, which is one of the you know, Gene scenes later on with his secretary. But otherwise, it's all from the serial killer's point of view, which made it a very different type of horror movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you think? Do you, what, what would you classify this as? I think I would probably think it's probably horror. If we have our, uh, our main character face completely red with blood after he has viciously murdered somebody. How can you not think of this as a horror movie? But um, he does it repeatedly, so I, I think that's where I go first. My opinion, if you'd like to hear it. Well, no one asked, but please enlighten us. Uh, is I didn't really feel that horror element, because for me, a horror movie has to be scary. It has to have some jump scares. It has to have something in it that keeps me on my edge. This felt more like a gore fest in that, you know, like you were saying, we're seeing through his eyes, you know, basically seeing our main character is the killer. And as well as kind of a dark comedy, some of it was just so over the top, you know, him running down a hallway with a chainsaw just felt, you know, almost that comedic element into a gore fest. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so thinking about this as a serial killer film, uh, can you guys think of any other serial killer movies that you like? Or do you even like, I guess, the subgenre of it? For me, no. I, I, I can't think of any others. And two, I, I don't like those. The only other one that jumps to my brain of movies that I like with, you know, based off of serial killers, Silence of the Lambs. Yep, definitely and, Silence of the And Lambs. maybe Hannibal as well. Sure. Uh, Seven, Zodiac. I mean, they're, they're, the, the list can go on and on and on. And I, I like those films. Uh, I like uh, to see where the filmmakers can take us and see what kind of stories they can tell because I'm always up for a good story. Yeah, but you know like, what I mean? But like you were saying, you know, the way this movie's different is usually you're rooting for the detectives to figure out the case and figure out the killer and find the killer. There's none of that really going on in this movie. There's a little bit of Willem Dafoe, you know, his character trying to get some answers, but that really doesn't even go anywhere in this movie. Yeah. Have you seen Seven? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you seen Science of the Lambs? Yeah, definitely. 
You're a big fan of Silence of the Lambs, right? You like Silence of the Lambs is an excellent movie. Yeah, I mean, all the way around. Absolutely, uh, the, way, the way it's told and yeah, yeah. It, it is. It is. Uh, it, it is cinematic masterpiece. It is a cinematic masterpiece. I think it's interesting how several of our characters in the movie are portrayed by young uh, uh, actors who are yet to have themselves firmly established. Reese Witherspoon, she comes out with Legally Blonde the following year. Christian Bale, he establishes himself as Batman, what is that, four or five years later? So I feel like the only seasoned person in there is uh, Willem Dafoe. And I, I, I can't necessarily pinpoint where I first found him on the cinematic map, but he is somebody who I just feel like has always been around. Yeah. Yeah. And and he does a good job here. Absolutely. You know, he is one of the uh, bright spots, I guess you could say, of the film because he does represent the good guy. And once he comes into the office, you're thinking, okay, well, maybe this does turn into your typical cops and robber type thing. But no, it doesn't. And, you know, it serves the story fine. So do you know the whole saga of Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio uh, being patrick in this movie like the whole story behind that didn't you just tell us it no i didn't go into all the detail uh, i we got the gist of it he wanted more money well originally uh so now i guess we got to hear it originally mary heron was scheduled to direct this movie uh and she had figured out her cast she had gotten christian bale as patrick she had everybody set up and the producers decided they wanted leonardo dicaprio he was going to star in this movie she said no, and she basically said, if you force me to do this, I quit. I'm walking off. And they said, sorry, see you later. So she quit directing, and she, uh, she walked off. She held to her principles. They brought in Oliver Stone to direct this movie, and he recast everybody, putting Leonardo DiCaprio in as the star. Then they found out that Leonardo DiCaprio, like I said earlier, wanted $20 million, and they said no. So he went off to do the beach, Oliver Stone then said, you know what? I'm out too. I'm going to leave with him. So he left. They bring back in Mary and she recasts it all with Christian Bale. So I kind of gave, you know, give her a little bit of props for sticking to her guns. I don't know if it's so much uh, she was stuck to her guns as opposed to uh, DiCaprio and Stone bowing out because that's who the producers wanted and they got them, but they weren't going to do it for what the producers were offering. So yeah, she stood her ground and she walked away, but it very could have easily gone the other direction. Mm -hmm. They could have said, oh, no, Oliver Stone. All right, well, let's get someone else. But who knows? Time, budget, whatever. They went back to her and they ca and she cast Christian Bale. And, you know, for what it's worth, good. You know what I mean? Because Christian Bale is, this is probably one of my favorite performances he gives. And I know that he plays the bad guy, but... He's so compelling and he's just, I believe everything he does. And I really enjoy the way they tell the story and how he becomes this unreliable narrator. Just the way it all comes together, I, I just really dug. When they talk about a little bit of the background of Christian Bale being cast in this movie, everyone apparently advised him not to do this movie. They told him it would be a career killer. Well, yeah, this movie is based on a book that was very controversial at the time, mm -hmm. right? And have you read the book? I have not read the book, but now I actually kind of want to. I'm guessing you haven't read it either. No, sir. I didn't think so. Uh, way more graphic. Mm -hmm. And you're, I listened to it because <laughs> who fucking reads? Um, and I remember thinking, damn, you know what I mean? Uh, I had seen the movie first, 
and uh, I heard that the book was good, so I listened to it. And yeah, if they would have put half of what he does in the film, talk about a career career killer for sure. A lot of people credit this film from taking Christian Bale from being kind of a side character in movies to being the star of the movie. And this kind of helped him propel him into future starring roles. Oh, absolutely. When uh, the first time I saw Batman Begins, when he comes out as Bruce Wayne, I went, oh, Bruce Wayne's a serial killer. That's fucking awesome. Well, you know that Bateman's only one letter off. Oh, from Batman? From Batman. So oh. it, it was like a, you know, a prediction, a prophecy. You're such a comic book guy. That's funny. And? Which is funny because I, I never put that together and I don't think I ever would. <laughs> and in this movie, who would you say kind of is his arch nemesis? you're you're stretching it there i mean that's a big stretch yes you could say willem dafoe uh and he was once not not who i was going with oh i guess you could have had two jokers i i forget jared leto's in this yeah you know what i mean he's Uh, so quick he's just in and out real quick yeah and which is funny because he's in probably uh the most memorable scene from this film there's really only a couple because that's the way this film is but uh he, he definitely is in it. So, yeah, I guess uh, Batman versus the Joker pre-Batman versus Joker. Other people that could have played Patrick included Ewan McGregor, Johnny Depp, Keanu Reeves. They were all considered for that role, but I think they chose right with Christian Bale. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Uh, so what did you guys think of the soundtrack? Did you notice all of the 80s songs from it? I did not know about this soundtrack. This was my, like, 80s love so now i want to go check it out but did you hear the story behind the soundtrack no hit me uh apparently as soon as this movie was coming out they released the soundtrack with all these great you know 80s hits and the number one on there was the huey lewis hip to be square yeah well they had purchased the rights for the song to be in the movie not for the rights for the song to be on the soundtrack so they had to recall over a hundred thousand copies of the soundtrack and destroy them all how funny. How funny. If I had one of those soundtracks, it'd probably be worth a lot of money these days. So, yeah, I thought the soundtrack was great. I thought it captured the the tone and the atmosphere. Fantastic. You know, and it made me think of Huey Lewis in the News and Whitney Houston and Phil Collins in a whole new light. Yeah. So, you know who, uh, of those names you just mentioned, who refused to let her song, or gives it away right there, but who refused to let their song be in this movie? I'm going to go ahead and say Whitney because it was a very instrumental version that didn't sound anything like. Yeah, she refused. They didn't give reasons why, but they basically went with the instrumental because of that. Yeah. There were rumors that Huey Lewis was upset about his song being in this movie, but he has dispelled those rumors. He said that that is not true. In fact, if you go onto YouTube and search for Funny or Die, Huey Lewis, American Psycho, there's a really funny kind of parody of American Psycho with Weird Al Yankovic and himself. It's worth watching. Did you hear that, uh, you know, we know that kind of Christian Bale is, is a method actor. When he gets into a role, he, you know, in this example, you know, he speaks normally with a Welsh accent, but because of this role, the whole time he was on set or offset, he spoke with, an, you know, an American accent. Uh, so again, we talked about, I think, I can't remember what movie it was, that Robert De Niro, it was a Cape Fear that Robert De Niro went in and had a bunch of dental work to make himself, you know, look more of the role. Christian Bale did the same kind of thing in this, that he had his teeth uh, really nicely well done so that he would fit that role of this Patrick Bateman, you know, this narcissistic character. Uh, you know, he, he didn't like the way his teeth would fit and didn't think it would fit the role. Oh, interesting. 
1987, Patrick Bateman, a wealthy New York City investment banker, spends most of his time dining at popular restaurants while keeping up appearances for his fiancée, Evelyn Williams, and his circle of wealthy associates, most of whom he hates. At a business meeting, Bateman and his associates flaunt their business cards. Enraged by the superiority of his colleague Paul Allen's card, Bateman kills a homeless man. Bateman and Allen, who mistakes Bateman for another co-worker, make plans for dinner after a Christmas party. Bateman resents Allen for his affluent lifestyle and ability to obtain reservations at Dorcia, an exclusive restaurant that Bateman is unable to get into. Bateman manipulates Allen into getting drunk, kills him, and leaves a message on Allen's answering machine claiming that Allen has gone on a business trip to London. So what'd you think about the opening? Which opening are we talking about? In the, the restaurant. In the restaurant. Um, it it kind of painted the picture of the world we're about to get into, and it it really kind of showcased, uh, you know, the wealthy and uh, what their lifestyle is like. Yeah, we, we listen to our waiters explaining the, the menus. We get the close-up of the exquisite-looking plates of food. Everything is so immaculate and prim and clean. Mm-hmm. And all of this is color-saturated. It is over, overly saturated. And I, I thought that was an interesting way to open the movie. Yeah. I had trouble with beginning the movie. It felt really slow, and I, I just was having trouble getting into the movie to kind of click with it. I felt like it wasn't until we finally get the, you know, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but the murder scene between Bateman and Alan that I then started feeling drawn into this movie. It just uh, it just felt like such a... And the way the narration and everything was, it almost felt like we were watching someone reading from a book. Huh, I didn't get that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, after the restaurant scene, we are introduced to Patrick Bateman properly and with his morning routine and that narration and that whole scene with his narration and the visuals we're getting at the same time, I, uh, it grabbed me and I found it very interesting and I kind of wanted to see where we were going next, you know? So, um, we're introduced to Patrick Bateman and we kind of see, um, the kind of guy he is and he's right off the bat we know he's a uh, he's narcissistic and he is um worried about what other people think of him uh the scene where him and evelyn are going to dinner uh he's wearing his walkman he's listening to huey lewis i believe and uh she's talking to him and he's telling us through narration that he's he can hear, but he's not really listening. And then they start talking back and forth. And he actually says, I want to fit in, you know, and that's all this guy wants is he just wants to be fit in. And he a hundred percent cares about what other people think. And that's a very narcissistic uh, way of life. Yeah. He, you can kind of start seeing a lot of his psychosis, a lot of his issues. You're, you're absolutely right. He wants to fit in, but he also wants to be above everyone else. He wants to outshine everybody. And we get that impression when we move on to the, you know, basically everybody throwing out their business cards. He wants to be better than everybody. I love all of the eighties kind of references in this movie. I love the fact that he's got this Walkman. I love the size of their cell phones. You know, it, it just takes you back to that era to see all of these things. Yeah. So from the restaurant, then we go out, then we, then we do a quick jump to the nightclub right after that. And then the guys are out on the town for the night. They pay to get in 
you know, they don't wait in line. They oh, get right, straight right, into right. the nightclub. And then that's where we get that first little hint, that first little element that we see of the altar of Patrick when he tries to give tickets for the for the drinks. And then the gal says, you have to pay cash. And she turns around and, you're a fucking ugly bitch. I'm going to stab you to death and play with your blood. <laughs> right? That's where we first get to see him. Yeah. This is our first glimpse, I think, into... The world, the whole idea of this movie is that everybody's into themselves. There's only one character in this whole movie that's really not just into themselves. Nobody else seems to hear others. You know, Patrick goes throughout this whole movie confessing these things and saying that he's going to do these things and horrible things, and nobody hears any time his confessions. Yeah. Yeah, the only decent person in, in, our, in our story arc that we have in here is Jane. And, and I suppose Kimball, you know, the Detective Kimball as, as well. But yeah, everybody else is shallow and self-absorbed, and all about the status and what they're and what what they're doing to make themselves outshine each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So from from the nightclub, then we uh, get the next morning, and we get to see his morning routine that you were talking about, and that's that's a really uh, interesting tell for us to hear all of his nuances and how immaculate he is and 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 how uh, disciplined he is in his morning regimen and then we we get that that little uh uh uh, face peeling moment you know that's that's where he's telling us that you know that he he's not really present he's not there Mm -hmm. right and then after that then we move to uh uh, the morning, his morning routine in the office comes brisking into the office, tells Jean she needs to dress differently. And then from there, then, then he takes off and he's off again. Do you love the fact that this company has so many vice presidents, yet you never see anybody work? Well, that doesn't surprise me. They also drop a hint when he's in the car with Evelyn that obviously he has a lot of money and that his father owns the company. So maybe that's just the reason why he just doesn't have to work, doesn't have to do anything. Well, apparently uh, none of these guys work because we, we, like you said, we never see him work. Uh, do you, did you guys notice that they all kind of resemble each other too? That was a thing that I thought was really interesting in that you notice nobody, like everybody keeps getting everybody's names wrong. Uh-huh. And I felt like that was a little bit of symbolism, a little bit of a call out that they're all interchangeable they're all basically the same person they're all wearing the same suits in that scene in that boardroom several of them have the same glasses i mean the exact same make so really again it's kind of that you know that statement about yuppie society in that these business guys are all the same you know everything that you know issues he's got they've probably got too yeah and the whole perception is reality does very much fits in this uh in this in this world um yeah they are totally self-obsessed and they only care about themselves and you know that that's the that's the way it was so Mm -hmm. so did you think that he was engaged yeah yeah i I got the impression that he was yeah well he said he called her his fiance early on yeah but then he also said that uh she was his fiance in like name only he never really planned on marrying her yeah he just had to have a fiance and during the uh dinner uh he 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 narrates that you know uh yeah i'm engaged to evelyn but i'm totally doing my buddy's 
girlfriend and he thinks that Evelyn is doing his friend and you can tell that that type of situation goes with the lifestyle that they all lead. Yeah, I got the impression that the whole reason he was engaged is just another thing that you know everybody else is engaged so he might as well have a fiance as well just to kind of again fit in. And, you know, in the book, they go in depth about the restaurants and uh, Patrick Bateman constantly has this guide of best restaurants in New York and he's constantly trying to get reservations. And it almost makes it seem like uh, your status is based on where you have or where you can get uh, reservations. And I thought that this film did a good job of letting us know that it was important to these people without beating us over the head with it like they do in the, uh, in the book. Also, I, I enjoyed the, the moment, well, I guess you could say I enjoyed it, the uh, the dinner out with his mistress, and she is high as a kite, and he tells her what he what she is going to order, and then and then she just like collapses on the table, and he just keeps going. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I liked right before that, when she wants to go out to Dorcia, and you hear him call to get the reservation, and you can hear on the other end of the line... The guy laughing the at him. The guy just <laughs> laughing. And that just that whole humiliated, slow hang-up of the phone. Yeah, and then he tells her, we're at Dorcia. And even though the, the menu says something else, you just kind of go along with it. Uh, so the dinner ends, and uh, they leave. And as he's walking home... He uh, walks uh, up to this uh, woman walking home as well. And then he looks at her and she looks at him. And, and then they start to walk off into the intersection together, you know. And then we cut to him at the laundromat trying to get the blood out of his... That was cranberry juice. Oh, okay, bud. I'm, I'm glad that you think that. But it was so funny with the interaction that he was having with the cleaners. And he would just tell them, you know, look right at him. He goes, I'm going to fucking kill you. Right? I mean, he was just so out of left field. And then uh, that gal he knows comes in. And, you know, he's, he's in a panic. Because not because he just killed somebody but because he might not be able to get their blood out of his sheets that he probably covets more than most things. He was going on about how 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 important the sheets are. Yeah. yeah. I kept thinking he's got so much money and he's killing people. He's a serial killer. Wouldn't he first of all have a bunch of extra sheets or have them on order or something and just burn those sheets? He probably could and he probably does have sheets upon sheets, but God forbid that one of them get one of his sets gets uh, ruined. He so, does yeah. give, you know, later on in the movie, you know, when someone smacks him in the face, you know, not in the face kind of like these are my things, this is me, you know, I get to screw with you, you don't get to screw with me. So someone getting blood on his sheets is like a personal insult to him. Oh, absolutely. And we get that from the and we get that from the very beginning. You know what I mean? That's the that's the kind of guy that Patrick Bateman is. So now we get to the boardroom and the boardroom has all the comparisons of the suits and then eventually it leads us to those business cards. Well, what do you think of the introduction of Jared Leto? I thought he did great at coming in portraying a guy who you instantly dislike. You instantly hate this guy. He's just one of those guys that everybody who's ever worked at kind of a you know corporate situation or worked in a business, there's always that one guy who's got to outdo everybody. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Um, I, I thought it was fine. You know, he um, he was just a character at that point, mm -hmm. right? He, he wasn't quite Jared Leto yet. Um, 
So I just thought he was a bit, uh, a bit player in this film. And for what he had to do, he does, he does really good. I just thought the fact that he just came in, you know, so swarmy and over the top and immediately was like, well, you know, I'm just going to outdo you on everything. I've already got reservations at Dorcia. You know, I've, you know, check out my business card things. I mean, just what I, he was already, you know, talking, you know, talking over everybody. What I like about that is the way Christian Bale reacts to it and his facial expressions. And you can tell that his blood is boiling and he's going to have a panic attack and he doesn't quite know what to do with all of these emotions. And I mean, that shit really gets to him. Which is interesting when he says the only two emotions that he has are uh, greed and what was the other one? Disgust. Disgust, right? No, he has lots of others. He has rage. He has panic. He has anxiety. He has lots of other emotions. After, you know, we get the introduction of, you know, Jared Leto, kind of during that whole scene, there's like this big point in the movie to draw attention to these business cards and everybody whipping out their business cards. Did you kind of get the symbolism of what these business cards you know, represented their status. I almost felt like everybody was just whipping out their dicks to measure them and see who had the bigger one. (laughs) That's how I took it. It was basically peacocking. It was all of these people. I mean, if you looked at these business cards, they were almost all identical, just little tiny bit of things, you know, whether it was the paper quality, the print quality, they all said the exact same thing. First of all, they were all vice presidents they all had the same misspelling on it. Did you catch the misspelling? No, I didn't. Nope. Uh, up in the corner, it had mergers and acquisitions. Acquisition was misspelled on every single card. Huh. So all of them, basically, that was just a symbolism to say that really, again, what we talked about earlier, they're all carbon copies of each other. They're all the same. There's nothing that really stands out by them except for that one upmanship, that one of they're trying to look a little bit better. Their cards meant nothing, but again, it was just this, to them, it was just the status symbol of they had to one-up them themselves. And the fact that, I think it was, was it Jared Leto's card or someone's card that was slightly better than Bateman's, and that pushed them over the edge. Yeah, it was, uh, it was Allen's. Was it Paul Allen's? Yeah. And so that pushes them over the edge and sets them off and sets them into a rage. Yeah, yeah. So because he doesn't know how to deal with his emotions uh, on the way home from work he uh, meets this homeless guy in the alley and uh you know at first he comes across as i'm gonna help you here's some money and then he just starts badgering him and then he starts humiliating him and then finally he opens up his briefcase takes out a knife and stabs him kills him right there this point in the movie i'm thinking what the hell kind of movie did you make me watch you know again because it leads into him stomping the dog right after he stabs this homeless guy uh at first i thought maybe there is some redeeming some kind of value in this character but then i had to remember again no this is called american psycho the guy's crazy <laughs> I was just gonna say that <laughs> and and really there is no redeeming value i mean this is kind of based off of norman bates in the psycho movies. I mean, that's kind of where they kind of got a lot of the theme to this movie is this is the version of Norman Bates. That's why he's Bateman. Um, and so you get the stabbing scene where you think he's going to be nice, but no, turns out he's still a dick and stabs him. And again, like I said, it's just kind of, again, that really kind of starts setting the tone for the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose starts 
Well, you before this, we only got an impression that, you know, like that woman that he walked home with, that he killed her, but we don't know exactly. We didn't see anything. And this, this is our first time we're getting to see, get to see him kill somebody and how horribly, you know, violent and just, you know, just no emotion, just rage, I guess, would it be the emotion, just rage of just killing this guy who and just... And then had, just to make sure that we don't want to like him, he kills the dog too. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, fuck that uh, one. And, uh, yeah, have fun reading the book. So let's just say it goes into a lot more detail. Yes, I've heard there's even, I think, another dog, too, or something, or is it just the one dog? No, I think it's a couple dogs. He guts the dog or yeah, something? Yeah, he does something pretty oh. pretty horrendous. Um, but he's a fucking psycho. It's in the name. It's in the name. Um, so, yeah, they go to a uh, Christmas party, and... He's trying to fit in and, you know, again, it's just this group of people that we have uh, a lot of disdain for and we don't like a single person in this room and we're shown this is how the other half lives and this whole time, uh, Bateman, he just he just wants out. Is this the scene or does it come later of uh, the doing the drugs in the bathroom stall? No, that's later. Oh, is that later? Okay. Yeah. But I mean, it's safe to say that all of these guys are on drugs. Mm-hmm. So, oh, yeah. It's very uh, Wolf of Wall Street, uh, but the other side. That's kind of the impression I got was yeah. they're kind of going with that or uh, just, uh, you know, the Gordon Gecko kind of Wall Street situation. Yeah. No, it's exactly what it was. It was it was to satire the, uh, the 80s yuppie. And uh, who was a better 80s yuppie than the people on Wall Street? So this is where uh, Paul Allen and Bale kind of decide that, oh, let's meet and have lunch. And did you notice that uh, Paul Allen thinks that Bateman is completely somebody else? Yeah, what was up with that? I was perplexed. Um, Because, you know, they all look alike, right? And so he might have really thought that this was habernath or whatever he thought it was not knowing that it's patrick bateman or maybe patrick bateman really is uh haber smath or whatever and not patrick bateman we're, we're it's it's to uh it's con- it's definitely to confuse us this is kind of where i started to think that maybe this was kind of a fight club scenario that maybe bateman had two personalities that he was really habernath but in his mind, when he went into his psycho rages and things like that, Bateman was the serial killer. And I thought maybe we we're going to get that angle in the movie. But then it really, for me, turned out to be that they're all so self-absorbed. And that's what they're kind of, you know, the statement on this whole yuppie Wall Street thing is they're so self-absorbed. They don't even take the time to know who they're talking to. They don't care. Yeah, exactly. They don't care. And that's kind of where it all nets out. Uh, so they go to dinner and, you know, from, uh, Bateman picks this kind of obscure restaurant where nobody is there and Alan is just ripping into him about it, just mocking him and going on and on and on. And the whole while all Bateman's doing is trying to get Alan drunk because, uh, after he succeeds, they end up at Bateman's apartment. And I think that this scene, um, is probably, like I said, the most famous scene from this film. Uh, what did you guys think of when he started turning on Huey Lewis in the news and you could see his raincoat and that shiny axe? And I mean, what were your thoughts? I enjoyed having him delve so deeply into uh, the music history of his, of his musical artists that he appreciates. Whenever he does that, 
and he just takes this deep dive. It's like, man, you are just way out in your own little world. I completely, right? Well, I just felt like, you know, I love doing research into the, you know, music backgrounds and origins and the, you know, the story behind certain music songs and movies and things like that, that maybe I'm just one podcast with Dawn away from pulling out an axe. Well, I, you may pull out said axe, but I'm not too worried about it because I'm pretty sure ain't your aim's not that good. And, you know, we could probably be faster than your axe. Well, that, so. and, and your, your back axe, uh, axe up every once in a while. That oh, good true. point, Professor. I didn't even think you could get it up. So how about that? But I bet you that didn't go the way you were planning, huh? <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I think that, um, I enjoyed the shininess of the axe. Mm-hmm. The, the the fact that nobody has an axe that's shiny. I know, and and you know he puts it on and he's doing this whole charade, talking about uh, the music, and he hides the axe behind his back, and he kind of dances backwards to hide the axe. He did the moonwalk. Is that what he was trying to it do? Was yeah. a, it was a lousy moonwalk, but yeah, yeah it was the moonwalk. In walk. fact, you know, everybody loved what he did in that scene with the dance move, except for the author of the book, hated that scene and hated the fact that he did the moonwalk. Yeah, well. One thing I appreciated about the scene was his enthusiasm for this kill. He was so excited and just so into it and so giddy almost about being able to kill Paul Allen that, you know, telling the story, you could hear the glee in his voice. Yeah, he was so excited. And then he takes the axe and just hacks him to pieces. And they do it very, I don't want to say classy because, I mean, after all, he is getting hacked up but the way they filmed it was smart uh they just gave us a lot of blood spray and uh christian bale's reactions and in movies today we would probably get one or two cutaways of the axe hitting the body and the body moving and something in there to shock us and make us go oh fuck but they didn't do it here and it was just as impactful you don't need it right and it and it really worked. And so he, you know, chops up Paul Allen. And did you guys notice that the blood spattered only on one side of his face? And then when he sits down to light his cigar, you kind of seen the cleanish side of his face. And it was very reminiscent of Two-Face or your dual halves. Again, right? it, like I said, it feels kind of like that fight club motif that maybe there's two personalities. I myself wouldn't throw fight club right out there be just because I don't like the fucking movie. But the concept, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I get it. One thing I noticed about this movie, and I could be way off on this, if you notice a lot, especially early on in the movie, when we see Patrick's apartment, condo, whatever it is, and Paul's, everything is white, bright, and perfectly clean, perfectly nice. Um, I don't know if that was just a way to make sure that we see the blood splatter easier, but it seemed like every time there was kind of this murder that was planned or... uh, Patrick, you know, was kind of gleeful to do it. It was in a clean, sterile environment. Whereas the scene where he kills the homeless guy was not planned. That was just full of rage. So that was one of the murders that was like, it's this dirty, unclean environment. I think he lives in the white surrounding just because it looks sterile. And that's the kind of character he is. Uh, Because when he does murders in Paul's apartment, that's not white. Um, The bedroom is, but the rest of the apartment isn't as sterile as his and i think the one i uh paul allen's murder is the only one that happens in his place so i thought paul allen's happening in paul allen's place no it happened at, oh in him at, his, at, his place uh, 
Bateman's okay. place, right? Because after this, he goes to Paul Allen and get pulls a suit, leaves a message saying he's going to London. He's creating a, a reason why Paul Allen is missing. Mm-hmm. He did almost, almost kill Gene in his apartment. Right, but he didn't. But he did not ultimately. Right. But he was giddy about it at first, and then he kind of was remorseful about it. But we'll get into that in a second. Did either of you ever watch the show Dexter? I saw a couple episodes. I heard about the concept, but no, I never really got into it. I've read a little bit about that Dexter's character was kind of modeled a little bit off of you know, Patrick Bateman from American Psycho, that they were trying to kind of go with a similar character with similar, uh, I mean, not so much the business yuppie type, but a lot of the psychological disorders. In fact, they kind of show that in some scenes where Dexter is going to get his drugs filled that he used to uh, basically knock out the bad people. He signs Patrick Bateman whenever he is trying to get these drugs. Oh, does he? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. I only saw a couple episodes of Dexter, but I couldn't get into it because of the Dexter character. I I, I couldn't get behind him. Mm-hmm. I I want to talk a little bit about uh, the apartment kill of Paul Allen as well, because I think this is probably one of the strongest moments of the movie. Christian Bale he really uh, he he really shines as uh, his his over the top exuberance for the moment of being. At this at this uh, critical moment where he knows what's going to unfold next, and just his uh, his his uh, enthusiasm, you know, as he prepares himself, putting the jacket on, he's dancing, and uh, I, I I think that Christian Bale really uh, starts to shine here. That you could see that he has and he has a future uh, of acting in front of him. I just saw this movie. Um, I've seen several other Christian Bale movies, and I, I can see how that this starts uh, his his uh, career as an actor on a more serious scale. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I I totally dug, and <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, but I totally dug the way he portrayed this scene and how you know I was so. I hesitate to use the words into it, but I was intrigued and I, I knew what was coming. I knew he was going to kill him, but the way he did it wasn't your typical uh, serial killer or slasher way of doing it. He was he was legitimately talking about Huey Lewis and the, the meaning of the music and what it even meant to him whilst bringing a fucking axe down into the middle of this guy's fucking head, Right. That's not normal. That's not sane. And if you ever were going to believe it, Christian Bale made you believe it. This is the scene that kind of hooked me on this movie. Got, you know, got me into the movie. Before this, I was kind of just riding along, you know, doing the watch check, seeing how much more time I got left in this movie, thinking this is not going to be a high rated movie for me. I'm just not into it. This scene drew me in, but there was one thing in this scene that annoyed me and bothered me. Can you guess what that was? It was him taking the raincoat off immediately after? No. It was, Can I get a fucking guess? You, you can guess. It was... I don't fucking know. It was the newspaper on the floor. Oh, why? I kept thinking, that square 
that's no way it's going to co- you know cover all the blood. The blood's going to get all over the place, if let alone just pouring out of the guy. That's not enough newspaper. He needs more newspaper. I immediately thought of Lethal Weapon 2 when the guy walks in and the whole... What are you doing? Looking to see if I'm standing on plastic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't mind the plastic. We're having some painting done. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But that's what I thought of. I was thinking that absolutely that is not enough newspaper. It's going to soak right through that in a New York second and stain that floor. And he'll be scrubbing for hours getting that out. Yes, yes, he would. Yes, he would. After private investigator Donald Kimball interviews Bateman regarding Alan's disappearance, Bateman takes two sex workers, Christy and Sabrina, to his apartment where they have sex before abusing them. Bateman's colleague, Louis Carruthers, reveals a new business card. So Bateman tries to strangle him in the restroom of an expensive restaurant. Carruthers mistakes the attempt for a sexual advance and declares his love for Bateman, who panics and flees. After murdering a model, Bateman invites his secretary, Jean, to dinner, suggesting that she meet him at his apartment for drinks. Bateman plans to kill her with a nail gun, but desists after he receives a message from Williams on his answering machine. So uh, I really appreciated having Willem Dafoe in, in this movie. He, he really shone for me. He was a strong character. And when uh, he's getting his uh, questions out, and then uh, Patrick starts to get a little, uh, wait a minute, what, don't you already know this? Yes, but we just want to see how well you know him. Right. And then, and then what does he say? He says something to the effect of, am I under suspicion or something like that? Right after that, then the camera shots are tight, where we're tight on both of their faces. Yeah, I noticed that too. And yeah. I thought that that was really good. And then from there, uh, Kimball's uh, tone changes, and now he is definitely analyzing what is happening next, and I really appreciated that moment. And they do such a good job with the back and forth uh, with Bateman and Kimball and the line of questioning, and you can see that Bateman is really on edge, and he's about to, he could break, and just lose it, but he regains composure and fills out Kimball, and and then the dialogue goes back and forth. And oh, I thought it was a great scene. Did you know how they filmed that scene to get the effect that they did with cameras? I'm guessing with like Willem Dafoe's, you know, his lines that he delivered. Mm-hmm. Basically, the director had him read the lines three times. First time was that the that the detective had a suspicion he was guilty. The second time he read the lines, it was he knew he was guilty. And the third time was he had no idea he was just fishing for information. And so what the director did is he, the director, she took different parts, each scene to throw in, you know, he's speaking from a vantage point that he suspects it. He's speaking from a vantage point that he knows. So it was to throw the viewer off and give that feeling of what does this guy know? What does he not know? Does he know he's guilty? Does he not? And give that kind of that you know, confused feeling to you. And a good director will do uh, methods like that. And no, I didn't know that. And uh, now I'm going to go back and rewatch it uh, looking for that because the scene works. And you can tell when, I guess, uh, Bateman is antsy and things like that. But no, I never noticed it about uh, William Dafoe's character. So yeah, I'm going to check that out. That's good. Yeah, you, you you can see it uh, in his in his brow, you know, his his forehead on those tight shots that that he is definitely, uh, you know, uh, looking at him suspiciously. It, yeah. it it really shines, and I, I really appreciated that moment. Um, 
he he carries us well through this scene. Yeah. I'm pretty sure this is where Bateman says, oh, he's in London or something like that. And Willem Def- or Kimball's character says, yeah, we've, we've heard that too, but we can't confirm it. And then you're like, wait a minute. Is he really in London? So that this is the beginning of the the uh, seed that they're planting in your head that maybe this is or is not really happening. So my first thought is exactly that was, you know, is there some question of whether or not he really did kill him or didn't kill him? I just then took it as nobody seems to know who the other person is. Nobody seems. So if someone says I was with Paul Allen in London, it could have been some other Joe Schmo that they just thought was Paul Allen. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Mm hmm. So we have a scene right after this where he's exercising, he's working out, and what does he have on the television? And it's great because as we don't see it right away and you hear her screaming and screaming and he's grunting because he's exercising. So you kind of think, oh, maybe he's getting it on or whatever. Uh-huh. But you're right. It, it When we see it, it's the fucking Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And what is that an example of? Foreshadow. Oh, for fuck's sake. Thank you, Professor. Again, you know what? I'm so sorry that I taught you what that word means. I knew he was going to say that, too. No, you (laughs) I knew he was going to do that, and then I knew you were going to say that. I was waiting for it. Oh, for fuck's sake. Low-hanging fruit. Yes, yes. So now he's out. He has those two gals out. And I'm Paul Allen. You're Christy. Yeah. And, you know, he, he picks up the one on the street and then he hires, uh, I guess, a high-priced escort. And did you notice the line uh, after he offers her cash and he, he says, do you accept credit cards? Mm-hmm. And that took me back to Wolf of Wall Street because, you know, Jordan's dad says, what kind of hooker takes credit cards? You remember that? The great ones? The great ones or something like that. So, yeah. My, my first thought with this scene, and I was getting a little confused here. When he's telling her, I'm Paul Allen, and then you're this character, I thought maybe he's trying to develop some alibi that Paul Allen's still alive. Uh, He might, but at this point, I mean, yeah, he could have been. Or was it that he basically, you know, covets what everyone else has, and he wants to be that star and everything. So, you know, Paul Allen kind of outshined him, so now he's going to be Paul Allen. He's going to take that from him. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he takes the one hooker to his house and he makes her take a bath and the way he talks to them, uh, it, it was interesting because the other, the other, uh, escort comes, uh, to his house and he's setting everything up and telling them what to do. But, you know, he's talking about Phil Collins, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then in the middle of a sentence, he'll say, uh, uh, Christy, show your ass to Sabrina. And then he'll go back on. And it's just so seamless. It, it kind of had me laughing. And the line that had me laughing the most was uh, he's talking about Phil Collins. And he says, uh, well, don't look at it. Eat it. <laughs> and I just thought that was so funny. Did you know, again, the way, you know, prepping for these kind of scenes, how Bale and the director prepped for this this sex scene, this orgy scene? Uh, they watched porn, and then uh, uh, Christian Bale made stick figures. Yeah, and they mapped a, out exactly yeah. the positions and everything. I thought, again, great with the method acting. Yeah, I mean, he they go in. This scene um, just shows you what a fucking loon this guy is. Right. But I think it's also there to show you that uh, 
people with this much money can, you know, pretty much buy whatever they want. And sometimes it probably makes you fucking corrupt. So did you have the impression that these two women were not going to walk out of there? Uh, when I first saw it, yes. And so, uh, you know, they, they do the whole three-way sex thing. And then, uh, he, they get up, he gets up in the middle of the night and when he opens that drawer, it's, it's messy and it's very much torture equipment. Yeah. And you're like, what the fuck? But when watching it again today, I was thinking, what the fuck does he do with a hole punch? Did you guys see the hole punch in there? The the handheld? Yeah. That does little, what the fuck do you think he does with that? I don't know if I want to know. <laughs> so anyways, um, he he beats these women and yeah, he, you know. The next scene is we see them walking out the door and that yeah. I wasn't expecting right away to see all of the bruises and damages to their face. Yeah, and he's paying them off and I'm thinking, what the fuck? He's letting them go? So it, it was a weird it was a weird scene. But, Agreed. But it, effective because it made you uncomfortable and... You know, okay, you can watch the sex scene and blah, blah, blah. There's sex scenes in a hundred different movies. But the fact that they don't show you what he does to him afterwards, I think is very effective because the way they leave and the way it all goes down is very uncomfortable. One of the elements of his psychosis and jumping back a little bit to the filming where he's filming that scene. Did you notice that, you know, again, he's flexing his muscles and things like that. He's more interested in looking at the camera than at the women. Yeah, well, he's very, he's watching himself in the mirror. So much into himself. Yeah, and we once again get to have a little bit more effective storytelling in not seeing what type of torture he was having the girls go through, just like when Paul Allen is killed. Uh, Quentin Tarantino does it oh so well when he um, lets us wonder what is happening in Reservoir Dogs. When he when uh, when we can't see what's going on and it's left to our imagination, this is what we get with how horrible must it be? Only our own imagination lets us fill it in. Oh, I agree with you one hundred percent. Now you can probably confirm this, Don, since you've listened to the book. Um, I have heard that these scenes, these torture scenes, are more graphic in the book. They actually spell it out in the book. Oh yeah, the whole thing is and. Uh, when we get to uh, more toward the end, um, I'll talk a little bit about that. Okay. Um, so, yeah, now uh, he is at an expensive restaurant, and uh, his colleague Carruthers, the redheaded dude, uh, Lewis, uh, gives him a new business card, and it enrages Bateman. So he follows him into the restroom where he's going to kill him, and now I'm thinking... Ooh, he's getting bolder. He's going to do this to his friends in the middle of the day. And, I agree. you know, things are kind of going to go off the railroad track here. But then something very unexpected happens that I didn't see coming. And, I mean, it, it was kind of weird, right? He, he hesitates for just a moment. Yeah. The fingers go around the neck, and then he hesitates for just a moment. And that is enough to allude that he may not be killing him. Right, and so he puts uh, Bateman puts his arms around uh, Lewis's neck while he's taking a leak, by the way, and he's going to choke him out, and then uh, Lewis figures out what's going on, and you're right, Professor, he hesitates, and then Lewis must 
mistake that for a different kind of advancement because then he tries to make out with uh Bateman. yeah yeah and he keeps telling him i'm i want you too i i've been wanting this for so long and the look of disgust and disappointment on bateman's face uh, bale does it so well did you notice he washes his gloves yeah. i did know because that. he doesn't want that remnants of what just happened on him that's how fucked up bateman is he's washing his gloves my first impression was you know besides being disgusted by lewis that he wants that fear he wants that anxiety he wants them to know you know his the people that he's basically attacking or murdering to know they're going to die and lewis's reaction of oh you're making an advance towards me threw him off and threw him out of the moment and he wasn't getting that fulfillment that he wanted yeah so he takes off Another thought that I had during this scene was, you know, Patrick justifies his affair with this friend's wife. Was it Lewis's wife? Mm-hmm. Uh, because he assumes his wife's having an affair. I thought he thought his wife was having an affair with Lewis. Was that not correct? No, he uh, his uh, his fiance Reese Witherspoon was having an affair with Justin Thoreau. Oh, okay, I wasn't sure if you because know, right here we've now ruled out Lewis having an affair with anybody. Yeah, except for other men or something. Right. So he leaves, and then we get to the nightclub, and it's uh, Bateman and Thoreau's character, and this is where they go do the coke, right? And, in the bathroom stalls. Right. And in the book, every other page is they're doing a line of coke or they're doing some drugs somewhere, and it goes into it. Uh, so they go into this club, and like in the 80s, that's what you did. You did coke. And then this is where... Uh, uh, he meets this model. He goes, and, yeah, he leave, well, leaves with a model. Before we jump to the model, I love the fact, just the interaction. This is actually one of the things that actually made me laugh out loud was when they were getting so, st- or his Justin Thoreau's character was getting so stressed out about the guy in the next stall not minding his own business. And, yeah. and I love just that uh, that interaction between them just getting so mad. And then he just kind of lightly says, it's because of the steroids. Yeah. Did you hear what the why the guy told him to keep it down? Yeah. Keep it he, down. We're doing drugs in here. <laughs> keep it down. We're doing drugs in here. I just that that was kind of this dark humor element, dark comedy element yeah, that sorry. I think is kind of sprinkled throughout the movie. He says, Yeah, sorry, it's the steroids. So he picks up this model and you know, nothing good is gonna happen to this model, but they don't show us because they don't need to show us because they've already shown what kind of dude Patrick is, and now we can safely assume that he's out of his fucking mind and, you know, the model is going to die. Plus, I think we see her head in the fridge well, uh, later on. Well, the very next scene we see is he has a lock of golden hair that, that he in his pocket quick, that he yeah. quickly tucks into his pocket. It's like, uh, yeah, so he's one of those serial killers that takes trophies. This was one of the another element that kind of bothered me in this movie is in a lot of cases with serial killers, there's. They're very routine. They usually use the same kind of, you know, weapon. You know, they follow. He seems to have almost like six or seven different serial killers in him. He'll, he'll use different weapons. He seems to enjoy using different weapons. Sometimes he keeps trophies. Sometimes he doesn't keep trophies. It's alluded to, especially I think in the book, that he's cannibalistic and he's eating parts of his victims, especially their brains. Um, there, he's just, he's so many serial killers just melded into one. So then he decides to ask Jean out. And she is more than happy to comply. Yeah, she's pretty giddy about it. I knew which restaurant she was going to ask for. Absolutely, because everybody asks. 
or Dorcia. And they make such a big deal about this restaurant in the book, too. So I'm glad that they they pushed it and we got the significance of it without it having to be re-explained over and over again, kind of like it is in the book. Did you have any faith that Gene was going to make it out of this? Um, at this point, I didn't know what to expect because there are no rules here. And, I mean, he is killing indiscriminately and he is just being uh off the rails right i mean who knew at this point i thought this was kind of especially with the interaction with lewis kind of broke something and that you know he didn't get his fix with lewis and so asking gene out was just kind of i need to get my fix i'm a drug addict I, I need to get my kill and so i i just no longer care about the structure of how i do things i just have to get that kill right so he uh Tries to get a reservation at Dorcia, and then he tells Jean to come over to his house at 7, and she shows up, and then this is the bit where he is walking around, talking to her, they're having a dialogue, and he is trying to figure out how he wants to murder her. Uh, he pulls out some duct tape, he takes a fucking nail gun. Um, I thought he changed his mind when he put the duct tape away as an I don't think I'm going to do this after all. I thought that he decided that he wasn't going to do it with duct tape, <laughs> but I still feel like he was he was uh, on the path to do it. I thought that once he got the phone call and Evelyn leaves a message on his voice machine that it was a turnoff, right? He was on this adrenaline. He was getting really turned on because that's, that's how serial killers do it. You know, a lot of them do it for that satisfaction. And this was kind of like the foreplay. He was walking around with the tape, with the nail gun. There was something else though, wasn't there? Wasn't there? No. So he had the nail gun up and then the phone call happens. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, it's Evelyn on the answering machine saying this, that, and the other. And, uh, but he would have to press that nail gun to her head first. Well, yeah, but I'm sure it's lightning quick. Oh yeah. So, you know, he, he had it up there. So he sits down and he tells her, you know what, you, you gotta go, you know, cause I think that if you stay, you're going to get hurt. And she is thinking, you know, uh, emotionally. Yes. Totally. Right. We're make bad choices. <laughs> totally. Right. And he, he's like, no, you are physically probably going to die. So you got to get out of here. She even asks him twice. Do you sure you want me to go? Cause I think she wants to hang on. I think she wants to get it on with him. And you know, I guess it's this moment that kind of makes him a human being if we're keeping score, but he's so far gone. Who fucking cares? But the moral of the story is he lets Gene go. Kimball meets Bateman for lunch and tells him he is not a suspect in Alan's disappearance. He reveals that a colleague of Bateman's claims to have spotted Alan in London, calling the investigation into question. Bateman is relieved and becomes perturbed and begins to doubt himself. Bateman brings Christie to Alan's apartment where he drugs his acquaintance Elizabeth before raping her and having sex with Christie. After Bateman kills Elizabeth, Christie runs discovering multiple female corpses as she searches for an exit. Bateman chases her and drops a chainsaw on her as she flees down the staircase. Afterwards, Bateman breaks off his engagement with Williams. So now we get uh, Kimball and Bateman having lunch and, you know... The, he's still questioning Bateman about where you were, this, that, and the other. And then he gives him his alibi. 
And Bateman is filling him out, right? He wants to know what Kimball knows before he can commit to a, a story because he knows he'll have to backtrack in the whole perception thing, right? And so, you know, Kimball uh, reveals that, I mean, you were at that dinner too with Paul Allen, this, that, and the other. So pretty much lets Bateman off the hook. Yep. So, I mean, again, uh, Defoe does a great job and I really enjoyed his character, you know. And, it, and it's at this point where... Bateman even starts to doubt himself. You know, was I there? What 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 was I doing? Type of a deal. So this is going into what's going to ultimately become the theme of this movie is, you know, is it in his head or did it really happen? So uh, every once in a while, they're sprinkling little nuggets to make us, the audience, question really what's going on. And the main a way they are doing that is they are giving us such an unreliable narrator. You can't really trust anything that's happening or coming out of this guy's mouth. All you can do is sit, watch, and wait to see what happens. Yeah. The thing that we have to remember about this main character is he's freaking nuts. <laughs> yeah, that's something that you should probably keep in mind. So now he goes and he tries to get Christy again. And, you know, you would think she would learn. But then he... Uh, the lure of the almighty dollar. The almighty yeah. dollar. He writes her a check, and then he shows her this big wad of cash, and she can't resist. And she, what does she say? She goes, I might have to have surgery after the last time. And he promises her, no, no, it's not going to be the same. It's not going to be the same. I wonder how much that part was true because she said, you know, I might have to have surgery, and my friend says I maybe should sue you. What do you mean? And how I thought much maybe she was, was lying. I thought she was lying about the surgery thing because she was basically just trying to extort a bit of more money out of him. That's what you were thinking. I got that impression oh. from that. Wow, you think a lot into those things. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as she pulled out that wad of cash, I knew she was his. I thought that she was trying to politely get away from him. Yeah, there's that, right? Yeah, for sure. The other thing that kind of made, you know jumped in my head is it didn't matter how much money he offered her. He could offer her thousands and thousands of dollars because after he kills her, he's just going to take the money back. Uh, like you do in Grand Theft Auto, for anyone who plays that. Um, Next time around, if she didn't get in the limousine, he would have had a puppy. Look at the puppy. And then, guess what, John? The scene with uh, Christy and Elizabeth. Did you know who Elizabeth was? Uh, the actress? Yes. Or no, who's the actress? She is actually the other screenwriter of this movie. Oh, is she? Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, Oh, go ahead. And the interesting part about it is, you know, when Bateman suggests that the two women have sex, Elizabeth makes a comment of, what do you think I'm into, you know, lesbianism? Wait, wait, wait. Let me guess. Let me guess. She's a fucking lesbian. She's a lesbian, and she actually did, in real life, go to the school that he names that, you know, aren't, aren't you yeah, from Sarah this Lawrence. school? Yeah. yeah, that's funny. Um, and it's this scene where we're going to get uh, a lot more information. Um, in the book, uh, him and Elizabeth go way back, and there's a, like a, a chapter or so that explains their uh, friendship. Uh, their history. Stuff, their history, right. Uh, so again, we didn't need it in the film adaptation, and I'm glad they didn't use it. But this scene was um, yeah, interesting to say the least. Well, he, the other half of the scene. Right. He drugs the drinks, gets them to start fooling around, making out. He's going to get his wish. He's going to get his threesome. And then as uh, him and Elizabeth are, you know, 
going at it. Uh, Christy sees this as a perfect opportunity to get the fuck out before it gets weird. She is kind of looking around, but she didn't flee until she saw him start stabbing her. Maybe, but when she got out of bed, she started gathering her things. She was backing out. She Mm -hmm. was fucking leaving. And then all of a sudden, uh, Elizabeth uh, starts screaming. Because, well, Patrick's head is in a very uh, vulnerable place. And there's blood on the sheets. And she sees that. She turns. She runs. And when Patrick Bateman comes out from the covers, his mouth is all full of blood. So he must have been biting something. Right? And so this is where she, this is where Christy runs through the apartment. And we're in Paul Allen's apartment, by the way. Yep. Um, I recognized it. Yeah. And she opens up a door and you have two women hanging. Maybe three. Yeah. And then she goes into this room, and it's like a graveyard. And so uh, you see all of this uh, gross stuff that's already happened in the apartment. Uh, why doesn't it smell? Why, why, why oh, don't they know this? And what if they had to go use the bathroom? Well, I thought about that, too. Uh, but I also thought that in the book, we get to hear or read about how each one of those women died. And so I think what they did was they just took it all up through it as quick flashes of all these corpses and mutilations. And if you read the book, you'll put it together. If you didn't read the book, it doesn't matter. You know, he's a fucking lunatic, right? So she runs. I love the fact that after she gets out of the apartment, he has the wherewithal to put on his sneakers. But other than that, he is buck ass naked running up and down the halls with a fucking chainsaw. First thing I'm thinking, how is nobody hearing this? Right? This was kind of our another hint that maybe this was happening in his head because nobody opens up the door, nobody has a question, and he has no problem running up and down the hallway with a chainsaw. Yeah, and the flip side of that coin is that everybody who lives in that high-end apartment doesn't fucking care. Mm, they're they all might self-absorbed. It, but they're so self-absorbed, they don't fucking care. So it could actually be happening. Um, Did you know that in between takes of filming this scene, since... Uh, Christian Bale was actually naked that he would stand around with just a sock over his Johnson while, you know, they were getting ready to set up the next scene. Yeah, probably. I mean, that or put on a robe, right? No, he didn't even put it on. He just sat butt naked. Right. No, I, I'm saying, or you could, Hey, good for him for loving his body. Well, he, he's got a good looking body. He worked for that body. He was fucking in shape. One of the things that he is famous for is, body morphing for every role he's in he will lose hundreds of pounds he will gain pounds he'll put on muscles he'll just get fat you know things like that he he really takes those roles seriously he doesn't want body suits or anything so the scene ends with him dropping the chainsaw what'd you think of that uh fucking lucky shot but i mean that kind of sets us up though right because they cut to her running down and he's kind of holding it with one arm kind of aiming and then when he drops it it hits her and then the his reaction is like, ha, motherfucker, I got you. My, my right? thought, again, along with, you know, the running up and down the hallways with the chainsaw is hitting her would have been next to impossible. Yeah. So the fact, again, that he was able to do it brings up the question of is what's really going on here. I also loved earlier on when he was kind of after her and was this where she smacks him in the face and he yeah. yells, not in the face. Yeah. He didn't fucking care about getting hit. He just didn't want to get hit in the fucking face. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he kills her. And then uh, after all of that is done, he goes to have dinner with Evelyn and he decides to break up with her. He's very matter of fact, he tries to confess 
And he tries to say, I have homicidal tendencies in me that are going to run all over the city. And, you know, oh, and by the way, I don't want to be with you anymore. So what did you guys think of that? This scene, I felt like was, again, there's several different, like, turning points. Did you notice that right after he breaks up with her, that's when he goes completely mad and sinks, you know, to his most psychotic level and i felt maybe evelyn was like his linchpin of keeping him from pure madness no i don't i don't think that but that's just me i didn't think that either yeah yeah i mean he he was already f- too far gone and um him breaking up with her was just something for him to do yeah he he doesn't look at people as people and they are um a part of you know things that he collects just like everything in in his apartment Apparently, Reese Witherspoon was three months pregnant during the filming of this movie. I just uh, like to pull shit out of my ass. I yeah, well, put it back in there because no one fucking cares. Okay. Okay. Good. So was the director. Well, that that is more interesting. No, it's not. As Batman uses an ATM, he sees a cat. The ATM displays the text, feed me a stray cat. So he prepares to shoot the cat. When a woman confronts him, he shoots her. A police chase ensues, and Bateman kills the officers and blows up a police car. Bateman kills two more people before hiding in his office. He calls his lawyer, Harold Carnes, and frantically leaves a confession, claiming to have killed 20 to 40 people. The following morning, Bateman visits Allen's apartment to clean up Allen's remains, but finds it vacant and for sale. The realtor tells him that the apartment does not belong to Allen before ordering him to leave. Bateman again meets Kimmel, who assures him that several witnesses saw Alan in London. While Batman goes to meet with his colleagues for lunch, Gene finds detailed drawings of murder and mutilation in Bateman's office journal. Bateman sees Carnes and mentions the phone message. Carnes mistakes Bateman for another colleague and laughs off the confession as a joke. Bateman clarifies who he is and again confesses the murders. But Carnes says his claims are impossible since he recently had dinner with Alan in London. A confused Bateman returns to his friends. They muse whether Ronald Reagan is a harmless old man or a hidden psychopath before discussing their dinner reservations. Bateman, unsure if his crimes were imaginary, realizes he will never receive the punishment he deserves. Roll credits. This is where we get... uh, the Patrick going to the ATM and uh, as soon as you read what the ATM says, you have to start to think what the fuck is going on now? Because the ATM tells him, feed me stray cats. And there just happens to be a kitten at his feet and he picks it up for some reason. I thought if once he picked up the kitty, he was going to break its neck or do something like that. But did you notice he actually tries to stuff the kitty into the ATM? Yeah. Well, that's what I thought was interesting because at first it looks like he's going to just smash it into the ATM and then he pulls out a gun and puts the gun to the back of the kitty's head. And then I was thinking if he pulls the trigger, that bullet's going to go right through the cat into the ATM and probably bounce back mm-hmm. like like a ricochet. You know, but luckily we don't have to get any more animal snuffness going on. And this old lady comes out. So we get, she saves the kitty. She saves the kitty, but it's a good news, bad news situation, right? The good news is you save the kitty. The bad news is you get shot. Yeah. There's only really three survivors of Patrick's, you know, possible murders in this movie. There's Jean, there's Lewis, and there's the cat. 
<laughs> the only three that get away from him. Yeah, that's funny. That's funny. I didn't even think about that. So now he murders this old lady and... The police are supposedly in pursuit. And he is running through uh, alleys and he comes across and he's cornered by the police. And then all of a sudden we get into this big shootout. And for some reason, he has perfect aim, never runs out of bullets, uh, but what I found most interesting about this bit was when he shoots the cop cars and they blow up, he looks at the gun like, how the fuck did that just happen? Because at that exact moment, I was thinking, how the fuck does that happen? So again, another clue that this may or may not actually be happening. You also kind of get the impression that he's starting to realize that, you know, from people saying that they've seen Paul Allen to the ATM speaking to him to things like that maybe everything is not happening the way he's seeing it. Yeah, I thought at this point, as soon as the uh, the ATM moment happens, he's beginning to unravel. He's having a little meltdown. After he, after he shoots the old lady, I go, that didn't happen. And then sure enough, when the police cars blow up, yeah, this is all in his head. Yeah, and so he is running through. He goes through one uh, building, and did you notice the guy calls him a different name as well? Says, Mr. Anderson, you're work or Mr. Smith, you're working, uh, late. working late again. And he freaks out and fucking shoots him. And then he runs uh, to his office and you think he's going to shoot the guy, but he pulls out a pen, signs in, goes upstairs and makes a call to his lawyer. And I thought this scene was bail at probably one of his finest because he was freaking out. He was trying to confess. He was all over the board. And, you know, watching it, I'm just waiting for what comes out of his mouth next. The director actually had Bale keep doing this scene over 14 times because apparently every time he delivered, you know, those lines of his confession, he did it better. And so she kind of wanted to see how good he could get with it. And so that was like after 14, 15 takes that the one we got to hear. And so after that, uh, it's the next morning and he wakes up. And he wants to go clean up the mess at Alan's place because he's got women hanging in his closet. He's got bodies decomposing in a different room. And, you know, he had to go clean all that up. But it's all cleaned up. It is all cleaned up. So an easy uh, interpretation of this is it didn't really happen. Or the uh, building owners are so self-absorbed they wanted to get it cleaned up as soon as possible and so they could rent it out and make more money and not tell anybody about it because it would just cause questions and that wouldn't make them any money and one of the tell signs here is when he's talking to the uh, realtor she says we don't want any trouble so don't make a big deal out of this and you know we disposed of everything just fuck off well, this is where it kind of brings up three theories about the movie. And then there's a fourth explanation from the director and writer. So the first theory is, is that Patrick is a serial killer and he's killing all these people. The second theory is that it's all in Patrick's head, which we've brought up several times of maybe he didn't kill all of these people. The third theory is that Patrick was killing people, but his descent got so far into madness, now he's imagining all of these things like blowing up the cop cars, things like that. A lot of people put that dividing line from when he filmed himself with the, the two prostitutes and all that and the narcissism and everything, that that's where his brain really snapped. And after that, it's questionable about 
what murders he committed. So do either of you subscribe to any of those theories? Well, to subscribe to any of those theories, we'd have to talk about the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I'm just thinking at this point, do you think he's committed all the murders, he's committed some of the murders, or he's committed no of the the murders? Well, at this point in the movie, I don't know yet because we're not at the end of the movie. Um, Typically in movies, they're going to resolve it for us one way or another. And was I questioning shit? Sure. Was it weird? Absolutely. But... I knew we were almost there, but we weren't there yet, so I was holding on. The director uh, has kind of revealed in an interview that everybody is wrong. And the director and the writer both agree on this. They wanted it to be ambiguous. They wanted the ending to not give you the answer of whether he did the murders or not and wanted it to be questionable because in a book version of this kind of situation – you don't need to have the answer at the end. People just accept, oh, great. It kind of ended on a weirdness of, you know, could it have happened or didn't. In a movie, people want answers. They want to know. And they said that, that that's one of the reasons why they felt that the movie didn't work as well as the book. The book just ends kind of like this. Um, but you're right. When you read something and it's in your mind, you can end it however you want. When you're watching a movie, it's visual. And so we are being told one way or another how to feel, right? And so with this being ambiguous, um, yeah, there's a lot of questions out there. And I think it's up to uh, the viewer on how they want to take it. And the yeah. fact that the director and the author say it's meant to be that way, well, then so be it. Yeah, it's just, it's harder to accept in a movie than it would be in a book form. Yeah, but I think it worked fine. I think it worked well. Um, so, so he goes right outside, calls in to Gene, and then Gene goes through his planner. And Gene's going through his uh, calendar, and she sees all of these drawings of just fucked up shit. And meanwhile, Bateman is having lunch, and what are they talking about? where they're going to have reservations, where they're going for dinner, you know, and things like that. And then he sees his lawyer, you know, and he goes up and the lawyer doesn't even know it's fucking Bateman. He thinks it's uh, Davis. And Bateman's like, why are you calling me Davis? And he goes, that's who you are. You're Davis. The joke you meant about, you made about Bateman was fucking hilarious. Bateman's a loser, blah, blah, blah. And uh, Christian Bale's like, what the fuck are you talking about? I really did all this shit. And then the lawyer's attitude and demeanor changes. Like, the fuck do you mean you, you're Bateman? He's a fucking joke. And this can't be true anyway. And Bateman's like, why? And he goes, well, because I had lunch with Paul Allen, you know, not 10 days ago. I got immediately, I thought, you know, I had figured things out that really he's not Bateman. That Bateman is this creation in his head that is actually a serial killer murder and all that. And that maybe really is Davis or maybe is really Haverman or really is somebody else that, that again, we get into this multiple personality and maybe we're going to find out that that is another one of his psychosis that he has this, you know, split personality. Well, I didn't think that at all because everybody calls him Bateman. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, his, but maybe that's just what he's hearing because he's, you know, his own memory is all screwed up. Yeah, maybe, but I his, mean, but according to, uh, what I'm to- what I'm shown. Mm-hmm. I mean, what about his business business card? Again, he he saw on the ATM, feed me the kitty, you know, kind of thing. Feed me the the stray cat. Maybe on his business card, he's seeing something. So that's just kind of where my head went. It's I don't think it's where the movie actually went, but that's kind of what I was thinking at that point. Yeah, sure, sure. 
Sure. And I think that uh, where my head was is that he could have been Davis and Huber Smith or whatever the fuck his name. He could have been them all along too. Yeah. You know, I mean, for all we know, he could have been Allen. I almost so, thought. I almost thought the movie was going to end with somehow us getting a look at his, again, his business card case, and he was going to have business cards for each person. Yeah, maybe, <clears throat> but it doesn't. It ends with him narrating and closing us out, and he is so disappointed that uh, he's not going to be punished, and everything that he confessed during this film and everything that he's gone through was worth nothing, and then we just... Cut to black. Did you catch what it said over his shoulder above the door? This is not an exit. Yep, which I guess from what I've heard, that's exactly the line the book ends with. Uh, I think it is because I remember <laughs> I remember listening to it and the end of the book and it got to that line or whatever. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, it said, this has been an audible presentation of American. I, I had to rewind it a couple of times thinking, did I miss something? Mm -hmm. It just fucking ends. Yeah, because I guess the point of it was is that there is no exit from his life, that there is no moving up, moving down, or any change. He is stuck in his own personal hell that just keeps going. Even if he admits he's a serial killer, even if he committed all those murders, no one's ever going to believe him. He's never going to get the punishment, and it's just his life is just going to keep going. I thought that the uh, Paul Allen apartment was... Uh, not, um, it, it showed that he imagined what happened with the two girls the night before, and he did not actually kill either one of those girls. That's how I took it. And then I thought that when he, when he confronts his attorney, I thought that his attorney is doing what he was doing just a second ago, he, mistaken identity. Sure. That's how I took it. And I'm sure many people did. All right, so are you guys ready to rate this bitch? Oh, not yet. Oh, for fuck's sakes. And now it's time for John's... Moment. This is the part in the show where I like to compare our movie that we watched to Lord of the Rings because it seems like everything seems to just equate back to Lord of the Rings. So I had to break down all the characters and all the instances and how they relate to that amazing movie. So my first thought was when I was watching this movie, who is our Frodo character? Who is the one that is on the adventure, is on the mission to destroy the precious, to save Middle Earth? And my first thought was Patrick. Maybe we don't have to have a good Frodo. Maybe we kind of have to have an evil Frodo. And maybe Patrick fits that mold because he is kind of on a mission. He's, you know, he's basically trying to get, you know, that shiny apple. He's trying to fit in at the same time, shine and be above everyone. But then I rethought it. No, there is no Frodo in this movie. Patrick is Gollum. We are watching Gollum's descent into madness and banishment, all in the pursuit of his precious. Patrick's descent into madness could be seen, I felt, really, the breaking point was with Evelyn when he lost his ring. When his ring was taken away from him, that's where he basically lost his shit and, and had to seek out you know, his precious and, and go more into what he needed to find. So... The question B is, 
What was the precious? What was his goal? Well, again, as I mentioned, his goal was fitting in and at the same time standing out. It was his desire was his precious. You know, he desired to have that standing out and fitting in at the same time. And in a way, it almost was like the business card was a metaphor for that. So the business cards were like the ring and the power they had over him was that desire. So when he lost everything is when he descended more into madness. Now you ask the question, well, where's the fellowship? Does he have a fellowship around him or is there even a fellowship in this movie? I thought maybe his friends, but when I got rid of the Frodo idea, I didn't feel like a fellowship was needed anymore. Sam or possibly Gandalf, who would those characters be? I felt like maybe Jean, his assistant, was Sam in that she was always trying to help him in the beginning, make his reservations. You know, she was his administrative assistant, so she was helping him and there for him. But at the same time, she was the only one who was not so self-absorbed that she could start seeing Patrick for who he really was when she started looking at those doodles, you know, those things that he had done in his planner. So in that way, maybe she was more of a Gandalf character in that she could see through it. You know, Gandalf talks in the movies about how, you know, he knew, you know, Bilbo had the ring and he knew he could kind of see through the veil of things. So maybe that was a little bit like Jean was more of a Gandalf character. Mordor, I felt like that was corporate America. It was the whole situation of Wall Street where they were on. Now, the Mount Doom of casting off the precious, I felt when I was watching the movie, I was kind of watching of where that change was. Where was that point where Patrick cast off his desires and cast off for everything he was going for? For me, that was the moment he confessed everything to his lawyer on the answering machine. That's where he threw away all his desires and now it was almost like he was seeking punishment. He was admitting all of his wrongdoings. He was, he was trying to get, you know, it seemed like he get to a point where he wanted someone to stop him. And so for me, that was the point where he threw the ring into Mount Doom, you know, into Mount Doom to destroy all of that. But I also felt like in a way, Maybe it was like, you know, Frodo's instance when he was on the edge and ended up giving into temptation of the ring in that, yes, he admitted everything, but then he still got away with it and it keeps going. So maybe we didn't get the ring cast off. I don't know. What do you think? Fucking stupid. Uh, I thought it was okay with the golem bit, but then after you left the golem bit, it all went right off the fucking rails. Uh. So I'm... Uh, Give me a grade there, Professor. D minus. D minus from the Professor. I'm going to give you a C. I did like the Gollum bit because it was different than what you've done before. And it, it kind of made sense, but, uh, you know. That was the only thing. And then, you know, the 10 minute, uh, the ten minute explanation after that, yeah, it didn't need so much. Okay. So, uh, C for you. And that was John's. moment all right so what do you guys think you guys ready to rate this bitch i am so ready uh professor how do we do our ratings we do our ratings on a scale of one to five fucks five fucks is a movie that is cinematic gold you are ready to watch this movie anytime a one fuck movie is you're one and done you were you were wanting to watch it so you watched it and it's like all right i don't need to see that anymore and what's a zero fuck? A zero fucks is somebody owes me two hours of my life back. Thank you very much for making me watch this. Not. 
and we just don't give a fuck. Um, all right, so uh, here tell that John has a lengthy review, listeners, so I'm going to put in uh, on the description uh, this part you can skip. Uh, so, uh, John... <laughs> Go ahead. Take it away. As I said earlier, the beginning of this movie was a very slow start for me. There was so much dialogue. I felt like the movie started dragging earlier on. And especially when we got to the dog snuff film or snuff part, I was really starting to pull out of this movie. It wasn't until the scene where Paul Allen gets killed that I was pulled back in to see, oh, this is what the movie's really going to be like. Regarding the story, according to the director, it's not about murder. It's about yuppie culture and the melding of identity and the drive to stand out in a superficial society. When it comes to that, I felt like the director with Christian Bale hit the mark on that and and really did a good job of displaying that to give the, the viewer that feeling and that understanding. There are so many mental disorders from narcissism to psychosis, just to the fact that he's a complete psychopath that was really well displayed in this movie. The movie is really, when it comes down to it, a metaphor for greed without consciousness. Gene is the only character in the entire film who, was not succumb- who had not succumbed to the commercialism and materialism, and therefore she does not have the blinders on and is able to see Patrick for who he really is. And I appreciated that they added that element into the movie, that we actually had a character who displayed, you know, not being blinded by these things. So we could, it made us be able to see better who was blinded. When it comes to the subject portrayal, Again, like I said, Bale and Heron, they hit it out of the park. They, they did such a great job with their intent and getting that out there. The technical aspects, I wasn't so much impressed with the filming, with the lighting. You know, I didn't get as much in that, but I did love the music and the 80s choices that they made. I thought, you know, playing the music as, you know, kind of the soundtrack, as well as, you know, Patrick's dialogue of explaining this, you know, each song really did a great job. And I love that kind of the way they envisioned that and made it work. When it comes to rewatchability of this movie, taking into consideration that when you know how a movie ends, especially a movie like this, for me, it's hard to rewatch it because there's nothing that I feel like I need to go back and re-see, or I might've seen something different or take new elements from rewatching it again. So would I rewatch this movie? Not likely. If it's something that just kind of is on TV and I have nothing else to watch, I still don't see me rewatching this movie. So that's where my my score kind of dropped a bit because I just don't have a desire to rewatch it. But on the other side of it, it does make me want to go and either read or listen to the book and learn more about what other elements are in it. So I kind of gave it a little more points of not so much rewatchability of the movie, but wanting to go and actually check out the book. So it got some points there. Would I recommend it to any of my friends? My friends would have to be into serial killer movies, murder movies, gore, or puppy snuff films for me to recommend it to them. I'm not going to go and just recommend this to an average friend if they're looking for a movie on a Friday night. This is not the type of movie I felt like I would recommend to anybody. So when you look all at all of that, um, going up and down on my scores for the different categories, it breaks down to you know looking at what got the high points, what got the low points. It all comes out for me, two and a quarter fucks. 
Two and a quarter fucks from the comic book guy. All right. Yeah, I'll go next. All right, good. I'm, I'm not shy. Good, good, good. I didn't think you were. No, I'm not. All right, so American Psycho. I have heard things about this movie occasionally over the years, and I had little to no desire to see the movie, mostly because of what I have heard previously about it. The character instantly reminded me of Dexter, and I was almost immediately turned off by the television series Dexter because of the character is somebody that I have nothing that I find redeeming or would want to have anything to do with. It's nobody that I can get behind in any way. Because of that, that makes it a really hard haul for me to say that I am enjoying watching the movie. However, Christian Bale, he is a exemplary uh, example of making a character come to life. And his, his uh, passion throughout this movie, I think, just shines. He definitely plays this part well. And whenever he's on screen, I am intrigued and watch with eagerness as he is delivering his lines. How is he going to say? What is he going to say? Why is he saying? And so he captivates me in the movie. Although, as I said before, he is somebody that I uh, have uh, complete disdain for. And I ultimately believe that by the end of the movie, he is going to be, uh, he's going to be completely where he is at the beginning of the movie, a psychopath, and he's going to continue to live his life this way. And so when the movie concludes in this fashion, it's like, eh, that's pretty much what I expected. I thought that it was also interesting watching uh, Reese Witherspoon. Always enjoy seeing Willem Dafoe. And uh, I, I'm glad that we had Jean in there. She is a character that I am able to find some sense of a, a, of a moral compass, if you will, that there is still a sense of decency that is being conveyed in the real world. If she wasn't in there, then I would almost... I, I think, no, I, I think I would. I would look at it more as this is, a, this is a complete farce. This is just totally lampooning straight up, and it's, it's going to be something just ridiculous because of the shallowness and the self-absorbed characters throughout. So because Gene was in there, okay, that kept me grounded in a sense of reality, and I for the most part, had no desire whatsoever to follow along on the life of a, of a psychopath. Willem Dafoe not being able to get his guy, then again, he is only doing it in a private investigator capacity, so I wasn't expecting him to, but I was hopeful that perhaps it would make uh, Patrick's character uh, more uh, outrageous which is kind of interesting to say since he is already such an outrageous character. In the end, I think that this movie is something that I have no desire to see again. So I'm giving this movie a higher rating than I would have solely because of Christian Bale's performance. I think that he has a very strong performance in this. I'm giving this movie one fuck. Well, 
<clears throat> there you go. I thought American Psycho was a good adaptation of a book. Was the book better? Yes, but the director's heart was in a, the right place, and I thought she handled the story really well. I like the point of view of the killer being told to us by the killer and not by our hero or the cops. We are put in the killer's world, and if the filmmakers do it right, we are about to be in for quite an experience. We had a very unreliable narrator that guided us through the maze of is it real or not. I appreciated the misdirection sprinkled in here and there, the mistaken identities, the crazy directions on the ATM, and even the cop car explosions. The movie is a satire of yuppie culture, consumerism, and the excessiveness of the 80s with some brutal horror elements thrown in. Movies about serial killers are a dime a dozen. Now, there are some standouts, don't get me wrong, but for the most part, we've seen them a dozen times. The thing that makes this one different is not the setting or the brutality, it's the casting of Christian Bale. Christian Bale's performance was so convincing and felt so real, his narration from the beginning, beautifully stitched in with the visuals, made this compelling and grabbed me right away. The way he conveyed two different personalities seamlessly made me engaged in what the filmmaker was trying to tell us. The supporting cast of characters felt very natural to the story. They all interacted with each other, made me dislike them all, with the exception of Willem Dafoe. I didn't necessarily like any of these characters, but this wasn't a film where I was going to find a character to get behind. There was no hero, only villains per se, and I was fine with that. The pacing of the film was good, the soundtrack was awesome, the way they used the music alongside Bateman's monologues was unnerving and genius. The horror scenes were effective. The filmmakers didn't shy away from showing us things that would make us uncomfortable. The scenes where they tell us he's killed without actually telling us or showing us are a good way of not overloading your audience with gore and violence. This movie had no clear ending, and I dug that about it. Movies that make you think and discuss after watching them have had an impact on your life. Even if it's just for that one moment, they've done their job. I enjoyed this movie a lot. Not sure what that says about me, but that's another topic for another podcast. I am giving American Psycho four fucks. All right, so that is going to wrap it up for this episode of Three Guys in a Flick. Uh, I want to thank Zach, Ronnie, and Jill for always listening. Keep on listening. Uh, if you are curious about what we are going to be reviewing next, please go to the website or check our social media page. I know that we said that we were going to do mall rats, but again, because of COVID, we had to push uh, our true believer out a couple of weeks. So we look forward to that. We also look forward to having Danny on the show to talk about Pulp Fiction. So a lot to come uh, from three guys <laughs> in a flick. Uh, speaking of which, hey, John, where can they find us? If you want easy access to our podcast, show notes, movie trivia etc be sure to check out our website at www.3guysinaflick.com you can also find us on the various social media websites and any site that hosts podcasts all right so for three guys in a flick i'm don i'm john and i'm ken thanks for listening giving fucks he says freaking puppy because, snuff film because you can't say fuck in the first 60 seconds uh we're way past a minute okay and what since when we can't i thought it was 30 seconds you can't swear it, i looked it up the other night at 60 seconds oh so you've been fucking us this whole time right in the ass uh do me a favor say d d
Nero. De Niro. Did it again. D. D. Nero. D. Nero. D. Nero. D. Nero. Oh, fuck. I swear to God, he just can't do it. My first thought was, do you know how hard it is to get a good secretary? <laughs> of course it you know, was. He probably had to go through his head, you know, I'm going to have to hire somebody new. She's not going to be as good as Jean. I better let her go. I'm pretty sure you can't use the word secretary anymore. But Well, back in the 80s, you could. Oh, yeah. You, there's a lot of stuff you could do in the Administrative 80s. assistant. So then, yes, it leads us to the next scene where he's at the ATM withdrawing some cash. Right. Who can that. pull hundreds of dollars out of an can, ATM. Can, 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 I, yeah, read it? can I read it first before yeah. you fucking move ahead? Go. Before you say, oh, can we go back to the fucking ATM? <laughs> well, Batman goes to meet with his colleagues for lunch. Gene finds detailed. You know why it's funny? Because he actually was Batman. It's not me fucking up the name. Was he? Not not, not in this one. And uh, I completely forgot about it until you came over. <laughs> I, I originally thought when you know we picked this movie that... I'm not going to do the Lord of the Rings on this one because I don't see it happening. And someone's going to ask me what the precious is and someone's going to ask me what well, the well, casting it off was well, in Mount Doom. Chances are we're not going to ask you. And uh, second of all, uh, you don't get to pick or choose whether you do it or not. You're going to do it. So, I mean, there's that. So be prepared each time you're saying. That's exactly what I just said. It's wrong on both. To be completely honest, uh, up until... Are you not normally honest with us? That's what I was just thinking. Sometimes. Uh, you know, maybe you like gore. Maybe you do secretly like the puppy snuff films. No, here's the thing. <clears throat> here's the thing. The gore in these this movie does not affect me at all since you made me watch Bone Tomahawk. <sighs> then I have done my job. Once you have been brutalized by that movie, you are... This is a walk in the park. Oh. I have one question. Uh, yes, sir. Professor, do you have your porn version of this movie? No. Do you have any suggestions? <sighs> American Psycho. Uh, you could do American Nympho. You could do... Um, yeah, uh, that's, that's probably what I got. What do you got? I had written down Anal Psycho. <gasps> anal Nympho. Anal Nympho. <laughs> I, I kind of like... I think you win it this week with American Nympho. All right, fuck off. Good night.